Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. As always, my name is David, it never changes. And with me are the NCP crew, Richard. I've considered changing your name by Deepole, but apparently they won't let me do it. What were you going to change it to? Mel Tommy. <laughs> How do we know he's not Mel Tommy? I don't, if I was going to change my name, it would be Max Power. <laughs> uh, look, they won't let me change my name. Apparently Ice Warrior Awesome just doesn't cut it. Look, awesome. your name is Luke Skywalker anyway, so don't worry about it. You're fine, you're covered. And Crystal. My name's fine as it is, I think. It is. It's lovely, just like you. Have you considered changing your name to Mary Poppins? No. Kids would love you. <laughs> Even more, no. If I, if, I come, if I become Max Power, you'd be Mrs. Power. She Crystal could... Power. That sounds Crystal so much better Power. than Max Power. That sounds awesome. She could have, you know, you know, the middle name Bethany, so that her first name could be Crystal Beth, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's a um, there's a swim coach. I won't tell you how I know this, but there's a swim coach. His name is Doug Strike, which is awesome, and he is awesome. He's a cool dude, and his swim squad group are called the Strike Force. Of course they are. Because why wouldn't you? Why if you had if your last name was Strike, that's what you would do. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant stuff. For this episode, we're going to have our patented five minute popcorn junkies, uh, and we're going to be doing waiting for trade. It's a bit of a bit of comic talk. We haven't had much comic talk lately. And yes. I, the crystal, I know Crystal was, was eager for some more comic talk. <laughs> In Crystal's head, you guys do nothing but comic talk. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before, before we move on to that stuff, I've got some pop culture news. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's all... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was good, that was good. I don't think I've got like a sound bite for pop culture. I probably should. I like it. It's, it's, and it's all it's all Man of Steel two related. So uh, Superman versus Batman. Um, I find this subject fascinating because I'm, I'm drawn to it like a car crash. I think it's going to be a disaster, but I'm drawn to it. So first up is of course that Superman versus Batman has been delayed for a year, so an extra year. It was originally going to come out in 2015, but it's now coming out May 2016. Um, Another whole year of speculation. Yeah. <laughs> and another whole year of making sure that they don't compete against Avengers 2 and Star Wars yeah, yeah pretty much it's, it's pretty interesting what I actually find, I find interesting is we, we discussed in one episode about how this dude had this pretend theory he completely made it up on the spot that Wonder Woman would in fact be a Kryptonian like all the Amazons were in fact mm-hmm. descendants of the Kryptonians right and there was a whole big furor about it. I won't go into that story again because I've already talked about it on the show but it was interesting and uh not too long after that, all that furor would die down. They announced that it was being delayed for a year, and so he jumped back on, and he was like, "Well, maybe it was." Just... <laughs> <laughs> well, he's it. nothing if not opportunistic. <laughs> I, th- I thought I thought it was awesome. I can't forget the guy's name. I should write it down. But uh, what a champion! Um, and I, I'm, I'm willing to believe him. Anyway, the other news is that uh, Gal Gadot has um, revealed that she's been signed on for three movies. Um, so that's that's not really. Much of a surprise. I mean, no, they, do that. they do that with That's everybody. what they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, they, when they cast these things these days, so everyone signs up for three movies. So it's, obvious, it's a pretty strong idea that there'll be a standalone Wonder Woman film, which mm. is pretty cool. Um, and the other one will most likely be Justice League. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Uh, the other news is the one that's only just come out, which you guys might not know, since you're now currently internet deprived, <laughs> is that uh, they've cast... Well, they've confirmed that Lex Luthor and Alfred will be appearing in the film. Yep. And they've announced who they've been cast as. Okay. So Lex Luthor will be played by Jesse Eisenberg on oh, the social network. God no. You're kidding me. 
What happened to all these rumours about Brian Cranston? Yeah, that's funny. If anyone even knows, no, but we don't. What a good Lex Luthor. <laughs> so Brian Cranston, yeah, was was the fan favourite, but uh, no, they've gone with Jeremy. So this is with Jesse. So isn't he a bit young? Well, that's the thing. So obviously now they're going to go for the for the the young genius upstart. Mm. Going against the older heroes type deal, like which is style. yeah, which is the yeah exactly, which yeah. is but, but my original idea, what I thought was originally going to happen, and I'm disappointed it's not, is that you're going to have Brian Cranston as the older Lex who's been around for ages and has basically mm-hmm. c- cemented his power, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and and then the, the you know, Superman shows up, young mm-hmm. powerful Superman, and he's like, oh, well, this is not good enough. Mm-hmm. But now instead they're going to go the young upstart going up against the. And the the older heroes type deal, and I just think yeah, that's, so, that's so, interesting. No. So much like the fact that Man of Steel actually didn't feature a character that I could call Superman with any you know real conviction, the sequel is going to feature Alex Luthor that I couldn't really call Lex Luthor with any real conviction. Well done, guys. Michael Rosenberg did all right, Joe. Yeah, but the difference there was is that um, all of them were young. That's right. He was doing it. He was doing it at a point where Superman was young and they were growing up together. Mm. I, yeah, this doesn't. This doesn't work. This yeah. doesn't work. I actually, not for me. I had and I had it all in my head. I was like, yeah, they said it'd be Brian Cranston as Lex, and he knew Batman existed. And mm. they were both older, but it was cool that because it was a human at the peak of his abilities. Yeah. yeah. But then along comes this superpowered godlike being, and he's like, well, then mm. what's what's mm. left of humanity, sort of stuff? You know what I mean? And and if you've watched Breaking Bad, and I've just finished watching it, yeah. The guy practically is Lex Luthor. Yeah. Very smart, very clever. Um, and But it is also very interesting in that respect. A lot of that comes down to Brian Cranston's performance. So, mm. um, they, I, yeah, I would rather much have Brian Cranston do it. It's a shame. Thing. They kind um, of already did the old Lex Luthor thing with Gene Hackman. Yeah, but that was a different, that was a different take. That was more the camp, sort of. Mm. I just don't think Brian Cranston would have done camp. Mm. I think it's, it's a, just a case of traditionally Lex Luthor is older than Superman and has been established for a long time mm. and and part part of the character is that as uh, Dave was saying when Superman shows up and is you know very much the young upstart with the superpowers and is an alien that's what sort of you know spurs Luther on hmm. um, well you know um, I mean I, I hadn't really any interest in seeing this film anyway so each new <laughs> revelation got, seems to uh, we've got more we've got more uh, and Alfred who I mentioned before has been cast by Jeremy Irons I said, no, that's okay, because mm. Jeremy Irons has got that really cool elder statesman thing about him. Yeah, so. And the other thing, Jeremy Irons, awesome actor. Oh. Okay, there is a, here's, here's, here's a question, though. You're casting Jeremy Irons in this film, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I know. We're One of the all-time to... great actors of, you know, of the last sort of And you don't make him Lex? And you don't cast him as Lex Luthor. No, no, no. Actually, put the... him up no. against Ben Affleck. Yeah. <laughs> he's going to completely act Ben Affleck off the screen. <laughs> you know, as good as Michael Caine was as Alfred, Michael Caine was up against Christian Bale, yeah. Morgan Freeman... Gary Oldman, and then, yeah. you know, think guys like he had guys like Heath Ledger and um, and Liam Neeson. Spot the difference here. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Ben Affleck, <laughs> Henry Cavill, Jeremy Irons. Which, which actor is going to blow everyone off the screen there? Imagine. Jesse. Although, I, having having seen Tudors, uh, Henry Cavill can act. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Henry, and, and, and I'm convinced, well, not convinced, but I'm willing to get... Ben Affleck could go. I think he could, yeah. you know, ben, people ben, have a chance to improve. Funny enough, Ben Affleck... <laughs> a chance to improve. Funny enough, enough. But, uh, surprised no one's mentioned this in any of the press releases, Ben Affleck actually has shown that he is a really good actor. 
and the one performance that he gets praised for is in fact his performance as George Reeve in Hollywoodland. Yeah, which he's very good at. Good at you know you know playing the first Superman actor. Yeah, but one good one good performance is not a good actor make. No, no. But I'd be more I'd, I'd be more uh, inclined to appreciate this film if he was actually directing it yeah, rather he's, he's than a director than actor. Yeah, sure. I'm not saying he's a I'm not saying he's a great actor, but he can actually given the right script and when you know someone or himself someone good or himself are directing, he can actually bring his game up. Yeah. Problem here is he's got Zack Snyder. Exactly. You're totally right. Like I said, Jeremy Irons is going to blow everyone off the screen. He's going he's to just pull it Zack Snyder yeah. should be Batman and Ben Affleck should direct it. I'd be good with that. I'm sort of uh, now going... To, I know that when I inevitably see this film, I don't really want to, but the fact is we're going to have to review it for this podcast. But yeah. I'm now going to be sitting in the cinema watching Jeremy Irons thinking... Man, imagine if he was Lex Luthor. And every single scene with Jesse Eisenberg, I'm just going to be thinking, what would happen if you put Jeremy Irons into that scene? Yeah. It's like, um, uh, and we'll get to this a bit later on too, it's like uh, Terrence Howard and Don Cheadle. Because Don Cheadle replaced Terrence Howard once in one film, every time I see Terrence Howard now, I think, gee, I wonder what Don Cheadle would be like in that role. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and the other thing with the storyline, when it was Brian Cranston... I thought one of his fears would have been when Wonder Woman showed up. It's like, well, what if Wonder... I mean, it's bad enough we've got this alien here. What if Wonder Woman and Superman actually have kids? Mm. It's like it's the end of the human race, you know mm. what I mean? I thought that would have been very fascinating. But now you've, now because you've got Jesse Eisenberg, I actually think it's going to be more on the lines of Jesse Eisenberg discovers Wonder Woman and then builds her up mm. as the superhero to take on Superman and is and is the... And the is, fo- is the focal point. He's basically the cause of why Wonder Woman and Superman have a fight. And is the whole, because it's called Batman vs. Superman, hmm. going to engineer the confrontation between the Man yeah. of Steel and the Dark Knight so yeah. that, you know, he comes out on... So he, he, he creates a reality show version of a, of a Royal Rumble. I, I bet you that's the story. And if it's not, I'll be shocked. And if it is, you heard it here first! <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. that doesn't sound like a very good idea. So that's most likely exactly what it'll be. Hey! I'm offended and happy at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, moving on to Popcorn Junkies. First up, we've got Richo with Prisoners. Prisoners is a 2013 film directed by Dennis Villeneuve. It stars Hugh Jackman, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Viola Davis, Maria Bello, Terence Howard. More about him in a moment. <laughs> You're on a Terence Howard rampage. Uh, <laughs> Melissa Leo and Paul Dano. The basic story is that um, Hugh Jackman and Terence Howard are neighbours. They're both family men. And uh, their children are kidnapped. Jake Gyllenhaal plays the uh, detective that's called in to investigate the case. Um, and basically, we follow we follow two narratives in there. We follow uh, Jake Gyllenhaal as Detective Loki, his investigation, um, what he's trying to deal with in, in tracking uh, the kidnapper down. But I think the, the stronger story, though, is the one with Hugh Jackman and what he does and what lengths he'll go to to get his daughter back. And I'll say this now without spoiling too much, the lengths that he goes to are pretty extreme. <laughs> I don't think they're extreme. They I are they're extreme. Fu- I think they're fully justified. I'm not saying... Well, they're not exactly justified. <laughs> no, completely. Say, 100%. But... <laughs> it's a debate for uh, the day. In, in no way is it justified. <laughs> and we can't talk about that with giving... Okay, all right. It's, maybe it's not justified, but understandable. 
Basically, um, look, whilst there, there are these two narratives, like I said, the, the Hugh Jackman story is the strongest one. Mm. Um, and it's really made by Hugh's performance, I think. Um, as a man pushed to the edge, a man trying to deal with, you know, the grief and loss and anger and everything that's happened with um, with his missing child, um, the desperation he's feeling to try and get his child back. Um, you know, he, he does understand that as these cases go on, the chances of finding his daughter alive uh, sort of get more and more slim. And so he, like I said, he pushes himself to the limit. Like, and I, I tried to say this without spoiling anything, but my God, the, the, what he goes to, through and what, what he does is just unbelievable. <laughs> as, as, as David said, um, you can see why he's doing this. And this is the big sort of moral question that is posed in the film is the, the lengths that he's going to, you can understand them, but at the same time, would you push yourself to that limit as well? Um, would, would you go there? Um, Dave certainly would. <laughs> but Dave would go there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Even if he just stole my Star Wars action figure or something. <laughs> you need a reason? <laughs> I'm, like, no, I'm not that. I'm not, I'm not psychotic. I need a reason. <laughs> he just bucked me as he walked past me. <laughs> nope, that's it. <laughs> So what, uh, what what you have what here, what you have here is an is a, an interesting, solid story. It's a very atmospheric movie. It's it's very nicely directed. Yeah. There are times in the tale where it it's trying to be, I think, too much. It's it's at one point it's trying to be, you know, obviously this this tale of a man struggling with um, the loss of his child, but it's also trying to be that sort of twist and turn, mm. sort of thriller type movie, and I think. That's kind of where it loses me a little bit. Yeah, uh, the twists and turns are, are a little bit much, and I didn't really need them. Like mm. the the story that was being told with, with Hugh Jackman was strong enough as it was. Jake Gyllenhaal's story with Detective Loki, um, once again, it's interesting, but it doesn't doesn't hold your attention the same way. And I often find that it, at, at points in the film, it's a little bit distracting. What's with the freaking the blinking business? I actually got so frustrating. I thought that was quite interesting. It's like, though. dude, just get some eye drops and just move on. Oh, but I just about Jake. That's what you were talking about, Richard. No, no, I was talking about Loki. <laughs> yeah, Detective Loki. But oh. I, I, I liked that. It's a, quite a sort of interesting, nuanced thing to do to your character. But, um, but yeah, look, Hugh, Hugh is well supported here for the most part <laughs> by the actors in question. Oh, Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal is excellent. Uh, Viola Davis, Maria Bello has a few really, really strong moments in this film. Melissa Leo is... I don't know, Melissa Leo is always kind of creepy for me. Even when she's not really... <laughs> even when she's not really trying to be. As soon as just... she appears on screen, you know something's up. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Tremay, where she's actually playing a genuinely nice person. <laughs> well, I haven't seen her, so I don't know. Probably the point where this falls down, and yes, I am going there, is Terrence Howard. I'm sorry, but this guy's got nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> He's he's got no real real screen presence about him. He's got no charisma. He's not really a very good actor. And there are certain real key moments in these films, scenes that should just totally blow you away between him and, and Hugh Jackman. And Hugh Jackman is going all out, and Terence Howard is like just there, like he just totally doesn't right. capture the scene where he finds out what what Hugh Jackman's character has been doing all this time. Exactly right. The that key is, point. And it's that just is like... the that is the scene where and and. As I was saying earlier in the intro, that was the scene where I thought, you know, if Don Cheadle was here, this would be brilliant. If Don Cheadle would just kill this scene and make it as powerful as it's meant to be. But instead, Terrence Howard, you blew it! 
<laughs> so Terry Howard for you is 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 like uh, Sam Worthington for me. Is that what it is? Well, he's not he's not the worst actor in the world. I mean, he's not you know a Josh Hartnett level bad or anything like that. It's just that he's been cast here in a scene that requires really powerful dramatic moments. And he just can't deliver them. Oh, that, that's really enough. what it comes down to. He's an actor that needs to be cast in certain roles and just stick to those roles. But having said that, uh, as I said, there's some fantastic performances here. Um, this is a really good, solid, atmospheric film. And I would give this three and a half looks. Well worth checking out. And uh, it's a, just very quickly, it's a disgrace that Hugh Jackman wasn't nominated for Best Actor because his performance is brilliant. Yeah, and we do. And that's a, that's a fair score. Is, um, it's as we talked before. It's like it's just the the stuff that's not focused on Hugh Jackman. The, mm. the scene where Loki knocks all the stuff off the desk in frustration, and then sure enough, there's the clue. And yeah. it's like, come on! Yeah, what, well, yeah it, that, it, it gives it gives into the pot boil twist and turn. When it becomes kiss the girls. It's yeah, like, and when it's not actually yeah. set up to be that, and that's that's the disappointing thing about prisoners. David was going. No, no, don't, 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 no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. When he went, when he was, when he stored to his desk and he starts hitting the shit in I was like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. No. Oh. <laughs> I knew what was going to happen. I knew it. Okay, next up we've got young Luke with Riddick. Okay. When last we left Richard P. Riddick, he was in charge of a half-dead... Uh- Is his name really Richard P. Riddick? Yep. He- really? <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's either Richard P or Richard B, but he introduces himself in Pitch Black to the antique dealer. Yeah, um, yeah. Rich Richie Riddick. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Why would Luke make that up? Because <laughs> he, he's clever that, that way. Um, <laughs> when last we left um, Riddick, he was. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he was in charge of a of a half dead of a half dead army poised to take over the world. And the audience pretty much shared the half-dead part. Um, <laughs> Chronicles is abysmal. So abysmal, in fact, that Riddick decided, no, nope, don't want to be in that type of film anymore. I'm going to go back to the planet and pitch black. Um, Riddick itself, and this is the first time where it's not, you know, pitch black or the Chronicles of Riddick, it's just Riddick to point it out to the audience. Riddick has, in fact, been portrayed by Carl Urban's character, Marco, and been stranded on some planet in the middle of nowhere which looks like a, a cross between Crematoria from the Chronicles of Riddick and the planet that they're on in Pitch Black. Hmm. Um, because we don't have any new ideas. Um, and pretty much left to struggle for himself. That's the first act. Second act, mercenaries arrive. They have a bit of a fling and, you know, Riddick tries to do what Riddick does best and go around and bump them all off one by one. And then the third act is effectively the plot of Pitch Black again. You know, the sun goes down, monsters come out, everyone runs and hides. That is the entire plot line. There are no surprises what ha- whatsoever. There's nothing particularly interesting at all about what's going on. In fact, if you've seen things like Aliens, Dog Soldiers, Predators, and Pitch Black, <laughs> you've pretty much got the nuts and bolts of this film. It is so unstructured. It is so badly plotted that you sit there going, seeing that, seeing that, join that dot, join that dot. Oh, this is what's going to happen in ten minutes. This is what's going to happen in fifty, and you, if you if you place if you place bets on what was going to happen, your bookie would lose substantial amounts of money. <laughs> Vin Diesel returns as the title character Riddick, um, Richard, Richard, P, um, because he's only got two. That can't be true. He's only got two characters, which is this and the character from the Fast and the Furious. Mm-hmm. Um, David Tui, um, the director of the previous two efforts, returns, much to everyone's chagrin, um, and he also writes co-writes this story as well. 
Hang on, um, someone wrote a story for this film? Why didn't they <laughs> in film the loosest it? Possible, <laughs> in the loosest possible terms, I have to shift my de- definition of what the term write and story actually means, because there, there is no story here. It's a random sequence of events. There's only one strong aspect to this, and that's the production design. Mm, yeah. um, the Patrick Totopoulos again um, with his creature design and have done an all out job which they have which you know carrying on the only strong tradition from Pitch Black and Chronicles of Riddick mm. um, which is the you know the all out world design but this is a plot that doesn't make sense at no point does our main character actually drive the narrative he starts off you know fending for himself on the island and then when the mercenaries show up it's all about the mercenaries mm. uh, whilst R- Riddick's hiding in the shadows and the mercenaries themselves aren't interesting. There's a you know a character revelation about one of them, and you sit there going, really, and then throws in tries to throw in a romantic, not even a subplot, just sort of basically states at the end that Katie Sackoff, who's also in this, and Richard B- and Riddick are going to see. No, I can't help stop saying it. Richard B. Riddick, um, Riddick are also going to are going to form a, a relationship or an attachment at some point, in spite of the fact that it's not really developed at all. And there are strong overtones that Katie Suckle's character is, in fact, a lesbian. Nothing Maybe Riddick can turn it. Oh, yeah, no, this is more and more... I'm thinking, this is all dreamed up by Howard Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, this, you actually this, get to see a bit of Katie Suckle's nudity. Um, this is... Uh, that's pretty much... Crystal's almost right. This is fanboy fiction. This is fan fiction. Yeah. This is stuff that you'd find on the internet. This is not a professional uh, piece of filmmaking at all. I can forgive the low budget... Um, I've got no problem with low-budget science fiction as long as there are strong ideas and well-written characters, but the lack of budget doesn't make up for any of the other quite strong deficiencies with this film. If it wasn't for the production, okay, this would probably get zero looks. Um, as it is, production alone means it gets one. Okay, next up we have Crystal with Clam Bake. Yes, cue the uh, bikini-clad wiggling... Bot from the sixties. <laughs> we're gonna have a we're gonna have a clam bake. All right. Ah uh, yeah. Um, go go style. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, nice. Luke's got down. I wish I could, wish we could see some video podcast. <laughs> well, no. Uh, um, I I love a bad Elvis movie. Uh, I just it's, it's, they all are. No, no, I disagree. They're, they're not all bad. They're just some, mostly. Jailhouse Rock's okay. And, no, yeah, there's there's a couple of good ones, but they're all pretty good. Clambake basically is uh, Elvis. He stars as Scott Haywood. He's a um, the son, a rich son of an oil baron, and he's decided he wants to go off on his own and uh, find out if he can find love with someone who loves him for him and not for his money. At a clam bake. And he meets um, uh, actor Will Hutchins along the way, who is playing Tom Wilson. He's really not a very good actor. <laughs> he's, he's really bad. The Terrence Howard of his generation. I'd like to point out Elvis himself, not exactly, you know. Yeah, yeah but when him. Elvis is doing a better job than an actual actor, yeah. you know, something's yeah. wrong. Yeah, so um, uh, they meet each other at one of Elvis's gas stations. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and instantly become best friends and decide to swap identities. <laughs> As you do. As you do. So well, is this, that's what, what happens. This is, is this what Elvis does, the Prince and the Pauper? Yeah, yeah pretty much. That's pretty much. I remember so when they, uh, Dave and I first met and we decided to swap identities. So Unfortunately, yeah. both of our names are David, so that kind of didn't work. <laughs> nice one. Um, so they, they arrive in Miami. Uh, Elvis becomes Tom, uh, a ski instructor, because he automatically knows how to... Is. Um, <laughs> what a skiing! <laughs> um, 
and and Tom becomes Playboy Scott Hayward, and both living it up the way they want to. Um, Elvis instantly meets a girl who he instantly falls for, but the girl's only in Miami to land a rich husband, and she's trying to get uh, James Jameson, played by Bill, Big, Bill Bixby. All right, Bill cool. Bixby. Yeah, I thought you guys had awesome. <laughs> Um, but uh, and Bill Bixby's only interested in one thing, of course, <laughs> which Elvis tries to warn her about. Um, so it's you know fairly standard story: boy meets girl, boy goes tries to win girl over, boy wins girl in the end, with some bad songs thrown in. A couple, you know, some are okay, but there's one song where they, the two boys, Tom and Scott, go to a park. Full of kids for some reason. They're on a playground. There's one little girl, she's being teased because she won't slide down a slide. The kids are calling her oh, scary yeah. cat. So, so Elvis jumps in and uh, starts singing a song because that's how you fix things. <laughs> and the song is called Confidence. And during the, during the course of the song, they actually spell out the word confidence. And they, they, they do it twice. And I'm thinking, they spelled the word wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, they spell it. Surely that's not true. They spell it C O N F I D S, and then I realised later they weren't saying S. They got, when they got to the D, they were going ENTS. Ah, oh, right. so it's confidence. Right, so, uh, right. that makes sense. That would be gold. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's an it's 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 an enjoyable romp in a nostalgic past, and they play cowboys and Indians in the in the parks and fit terribly racist. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, there's, there's this other scene where um, oh, Scott Elvis Scott, not it's Elvis Scott. Let's just call him Elvis. So <laughs> save confusion. Yeah, he's Elvis, just Elvis. Elvis is building up a boat to go in this race, um, and he's only got four days to do it. And uh, Tom. Uh, the other guy, <laughs> he comes up, he comes up, and he's late. But Elvis says, "Oh, you're going to come and help me." And he goes, "Oh, okay. Well, I've brought help." And he goes, claps his hands, and all of a sudden, girls come in from all entrances, all dressed in various forms like bikinis and beach wear, and start shaking their bums and <laughs> doing the swim. And and and, and, Brilliant. and Elvis manages to give each one a kiss, except for the one that's going over the other guy who kisses him, and then yeah. they all magically get the boat done before the race. Well, it's amazing. Is it a montage? Tell me it's a montage. No, no, it's not a montage. It's just uh, a dance dancing. sequence. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing what you can do when you're dancing in these kind of films. <laughs> it's like sounds like the um the bit in Greece where they do Greece Lightning, where they make they make yeah. and fix the entire car up the car in one sock. Exactly. It, it, it's the same thing. I reckon they stole that from Clambake. <laughs> oh, no, just <laughs> just out of curiosity. Do they actually have a clam bake? They no, do. Have a clam bake. Right, okay. Just where have to make the sure. clam bake? They where? do have a clam bake where Elvis sings clam bake. Ah, ah, that makes perfect sense then. But my, my only question would be, does anybody make Bill Bixby angry? No, <laughs> but, he wouldn't like that. but Elvis does punch him out. <gasps> <laughs> he, well, goes, he, he makes him, he, does, he doesn't annoy him and he goes, um, what does he say? He says, oh, I hope you can take care of yourself. I call karate. <laughs> <laughs> and Elvis right. goes, oh, shut up. Pow, you know, it's this, <laughs> it's this very event. Getting punched out by Elvis is what leads Bill Bixby to then start doing gamma radiation <laughs> experiments. So it's all Elvis's fault. All Elvis's fault. But yeah, I enjoy it for the for the nostalgia, for the, the look back at the sixties and the 
the cheesy music, the cheesy acting, and, and I love a bit of Elvis. Um, as, 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 as David pointed out, he's, he's a slightly pudgy in this film. He's in Miami, and the whole film he's got long sleeves, long pants on, always matching shirt and jacket, like red shirt and jacket or something. It's always matching. But everyone else is wearing bikinis, um, board shorts, T-shirts. Elvis is <laughs> full attire. <laughs> So he, he hasn't, he has, get the kid off. He hasn't quite he hasn't quite hit fat Elvis stage yet, no, but he's on his way. But he's on his he must be on his way and, and he's he's clearly not into the beach gear. <laughs> <laughs> this is never gonna be an Oscar award winning film in any shape, way, shape or form. But on a, an enjoyment level I'll give it three looks. That's fair enough. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Climb beak. Next up is myself with the Wolf of Wall Street. Mine's probably the most uh, recent film out of everybody's. It's uh, the latest from Martin Scorsese. It's written by Terence Winter and for the screenplay and based off the book uh, by Jordan Belfort, uh, who is played in the film by Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm just going to say right from the outset that uh, every single actor in this film does an absolutely magnificent job. This is what should be shown to aspiring actors to say, this is what you need to achieve. So there's no Terrence Howard in it there? There's no Terrence Howard, no. Howard. Although I thought there was when I saw the word Terrence, and I was like, surely not. No. That Terrence, you know, that's Terrence Winter, you know, guy who created Boardwalk Empire, quite yeah. talented writer, yeah, yeah, person. Exactly. Terrence Howard, not so much. There you go. Um, so of course, it, I mean, it's, it's headed by Leonardo DiCaprio, like I said, who's, you know, he's always good. He's not in the, he's not always in the best films, but... He's never um, reached his growing pains peak. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he's come a long <laughs> way from growing pains. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, and he just is the performance of a lifetime. A special tip of the hat to Jonah Hill. Um, I'm not that big a Jonah Hill fan, I'll be honest with you. I just don't think he's all that funny. And he's in a lot of crap films. Uh, but when he goes serious, this, this, is, this is the way he should go for the rest of his career, serious. Um, he's excellent in Moneyballs. Terrible, boring film, but he's awesome. And in this is unbelievably good. He's... Almost as good as Leonardo, and I'm a huge Leonardo fan. David's just typecast Jonah Hill. <laughs> Jonah, do serious from now on. Uh, but then you've got everybody else. Matthew McConaughey, small role, excellent performance, and he is on fire at the moment. Mm. Every film he's in so far for the last couple of years, on fire. Yeah, it's nice to see Matthew McConaughey actually reminding everyone that he is a good actor. Yeah. Um, sure. Marty was terrific in. I loved him in Bernie. Like, yep. he's, he's a supporting character in Bernie, but I thought he was really good in Bernie. And I'm really looking forward to Dallas Buyers. Looks brilliant. It sounds really good, and he sounds like he. And even nails even it. Magic Mike, which mm. was terrible, he was awesome. It's just it's it's, it's he's just on absolute fire. Mm. But everybody else, it's brilliant to see Rob Reiner as uh, Jordan's father, Max. He's just brilliant. Rob Reiner's the man. Rob Reiner is the man. When they say when they're talking about they're talking about one particular scene where Jordan's telling his father Max what prostitutes do nowadays and sort of, <laughs> just the look on Rob's face and the fact that he actually says some of the dialogue that he says I won't run it for you it's just like holy crap that's Rob Reiner saying that crap <laughs> brilliant stuff but like I said everybody in there and a uh, special shout out to um, uh, Margot Robbie uh, who Australia's own Margot Robbie who's uh, gotten um, quite a lot of interest at the moment uh, playing Naomi as it's it's uh, as being Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, you sort of you sort of tend to expect a certain type of film of these two, um, especially with, with Martin. I'm not trying to typecast Martin in any way, but I mean, if you're a fan of Martin Scorsese as I am, you, you kind of tend to expect certain things, and that does still happen in this film, but it is um, quite a departure from his more serious, gritty, gangster type stuff. Mm. This the Wolf of Wall Street I find is uh, it's, it's caused quite a quite a bit of controversy because of its content, mainly the content of 
people claim that it glamorizes Jordan Balfour, who is a real person and is still alive and is a bit of a scumbag. Um, I don't think that's true. It doesn't glamorize him in any way. It actually points out right from the outset that he's an idiot. It all, the other, other thing is that there's quite a lot of sex and sexual scenes and stuff like that. It's really not that bad. It's, it's, it's ridiculously over the top in those scenes, but that's the point of it. It's meant to be over the top. Um, I, I sort of see this as, uh, as Martin's sort of return to the king of comedy, um, mm. an underrated film, I think. Is, uh, it's, it's basically what if the characters in the king of comedy were gangsters, <laughs> and, but we're, we're going legit, and we're working on Wall Street. It's like a three-way sort of combination there. And it works. I, I love this film. I, it's, I was uh, a bit hesitant to watch it at first. But then I heard about what happened at Khan, where <laughs> after this showing at Khan, certain pe- pe- people of the audience actually went up and started berating Martin Scorsese to his face, like finger-in-the-face type stuff, saying, shame on you, this is a disgrace. And my interest was piqued. <laughs> I was like, if it's, if it's enough to annoy Khan, it'll be good. I think this film is excellent, and uh, I highly recommend it to anybody who sees it. Um, it's not for everyone, but give it a shot, uh, because I think it's actually, controversially, you know, I think it's actually one of Martin Scorsese's best works, and it's funny. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Martin Scorsese being funny, and that's interesting enough as it is, uh, but mainly see it just for the performances. If, if, the Academy, if the Academy weren't so scared, I think this would have been a strong contender to win, uh, but I actually don't think it will win because of that reason. Yeah, it um, sounds far too controversial for yeah. the Academy to go with it. It's, 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 it's not going to win, but it, I, th- I think it should win, and there's some strong strong contenders this year, mm. uh, which unlike my, most years. But anyway, um, that's my five minutes, five minutes wrap. Uh, I give this film four looks. So that was our five-minute popcorn junkies. Let's move on to Waiting for Trade. Starting with Richo and Nexus. Again, starting with Richo. Always start start with with the best. One of the really amazing things that happened in trades in the last sort of few years is just how much of the independent comics of the 80s have been released. Mm. Um, And there's seriously, the the 80s independent scene, especially the early to mid 80s, just phenomenal work being produced by a lot of creators who would go on to become big names in the industry. And also a lot of creators who were sort of, I guess, disillusioned with what was happening at the Big Two at the time. And so they would you know, leave the Big Two and go off to companies like Kamiko, First, Eclipse. And yeah, the work that was being produced was just phenomenal. It was groundbreaking. Just an incredible time uh, for reading comics. And fortunately, a lot of that stuff is now getting published um by publishers like Dark Horse, um, who have started publishing Nexus um, in omnibus form, uh, which is fantastic. You get a really nice batch of issues for uh, for your money. So, yeah, so points to Dark Horse for that um, and for reintroducing uh, comic audiences to these kind of books. One of the books I always loved as a kid was Nexus. Just amazing, amazing book by Mike Barron and Steve Rood. Um, the bulk of the series was published by First Comics, although there were three black and white issues published before that. And fortunately, the Nexus Omnibus actually gives you all of that, um, including those first three um, hard-to-find black and white issues. Like, I always had trouble getting my hands on those. The story is set in the future and features the main character, Nexus, who lives basically has his own planet, suffers... Um, headaches that lead to nightmares, then those nightmares then um, drive him to actually hunt down 
you know, killers and tyrants and basically execute them for their crimes. His planet is um, home to a lot of refugees and survivors that he collects from um, the planets that he visits. He is at odds with, um, specifically with Earth, and Earth is a major power in this book, and they are constantly trying to um, infiltrate his planet to undermine his efforts. Um, there are a few things that really make this book absolutely fantastic reading. Um, first of all, Nexus himself is a really, really interesting character. Um, What's Nexus's real name? Horatio... Hellpop. Hellpop. Really? Yep. yep. Horatio Hellpop is <laughs> his name. That's a great name. That's, that's better than Philip P. Riddick. <laughs> it is much the thing, better. The thing about Philip P. Riddick, I mean, it's just perfectly acceptable. It's just, it's just so ordinary. Mm. I mean, you'd think it would be, you know... Max, Max Power. Power style. Of, Max Power Riddick. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, so Nexus himself, a really fascinating character, he's quite a complex character, and there's a, as, as you read the series, there's a lot of things that he has to deal with. There's also an absolutely fascinating uh, support cast for this book. Much of the story deals not just with Nexus himself, but also with the politics of Earth, but also with the politics of his own planet, which starts off as basically an anarchist state. There's no government whatsoever, but uh, as more and more people come in, things become more and more uh, politicised. Um, mm. And that becomes an ongoing subplot throughout the story as well. Um, he also introduces us to one of the greatest supporting cast characters ever. It's a character called uh, Judah Maccabee, the Hammer, <laughs> who is. Um, I know what you're thinking. Stop it. <laughs> the Hammer is my penis. The Hammer. <laughs> the, the Hammer she is. Said stop it, you know. <laughs> she did warn you not to say it. The, the Hammer is uh, basically a. A bounty hunter executioner who is basically inspired by Nexus's efforts and goes out and basically really, really does what Nexus does, but with a lot more uh, bravado. And, uh, so he's like the Doctor Horrible Hammer. Uh, he's he actually quite a. Nathan he actually, Gillian. absolutely. I could definitely see Nathan <laughs> Gillian playing this character. That is so yeah. never, strangely, I've never read Nexus. Uh, look, it's it's fantastic. It really is. It's um. For its time, I mean, we're talking the early 80s here, it's actually quite ahead of its time in its writing style. Um, the other thing that really sells this is Steve Rude's artwork. Mm. Steve Rude is just, for me, one of the absolute best artists in comics, bar none. And um, what, what's great about uh, Nexus is you actually get to see him developing as an artist. Mm. Um, this was his first major work. It's, it's amazing how quickly he develops. Um, you know, he, you can see his influences in... Um, in guys like Alex Raymond and certainly Alex Toth, a big influence, and Nexus's design is very um, Space Ghost-inspired. Ghost you know, but, but um, Mike Barron's scripting is tight. It's very funny at times. Um, there's a lot of satire, especially political satire in the book. I mean, it's just really clever writing combined with, you know, brilliant artwork and fantastic characters, and I cannot recommend Nexus highly enough. It is awesome, and everybody should check it out. And I give this... Four and a half looks because it's awesome. And if you don't have fun reading Nexus, then you shouldn't be reading comics because it is so much fun to Richard read. Richard will give you your money back. That's all right. Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next up we've got young Luke with Indestructible Hulk. Um, when we looked at the Marvel Now um, stuff many, many moons ago, um, Indestructible Hulk was one of the issues that I reviewed. Mm -hmm. And it was one of, the, one of the series I was certainly curious about checking out. 
written by Mark Wade and illustrated by uh, Lionel Francis Yu. It's set after the events of Avengers vs. X-Men, a series I have not read and do not plan to read. Um, <laughs> Don't. Banner has now realised that he can't cure, the, can't cure um, himself of the Hulk um, and that he's not going to try anymore. In f- what he, the realisation that Banner has come to is that he is um, on the same level intellectually um, as Tony Stark and Reed Richards, but because he's, he's been so obsessed with curing the Hulk that that's actually held him back quite substantially. So what he does is he goes to S.H.I.E.L.D. and he, get, he makes them a proposition. Give me the funding to become the scientific... Um, genius that I know I'm capable of. Let me let me do the work and let me help improve the world in the manner that I actually know that I know how to do and actually should be doing. And in return, when I do Hulk out, and I will, you've actually got a weapon that you can just throw at whatever problem um, you need to be sol- you need to be solved that you need a pair of fists to solve. That's a cool idea. Um, it's actually a very interesting. Way to do, way to do the Hulk, um, and it takes you away from the the whole. He's on the run. Um, Thunderbolt Ross is after him. Uh, isn't it sad? Sad, sad, sad. Hulk smash, Hulk smash. Sad, sad, sad. Oh, why me? Why me? Why have I got this terrible curse? You know, the idea of Banner owning um, what he now has and trying to use that as a gift to help humanity. Is that the direction they went in in the movie? Yeah. To a certain extent. Parallels. Yeah, to a certain extent in the Avengers, but here um, it's a choice that Banner has made. Of his own volition, rather than Shield uh, having of uh, Shield having to go and get him, he actually does approach Shield. Um, so yeah, if Scarlet Hands is going to come and get you. You're going to say, "Yeah, no worries, I'll go with you." Yeah, but is Black Widow doesn't appear. There's a reason they there is a reason they said Scarlet Hands. Um, uh, and so from, from that um, from that <laughs> issue, I was um, certainly intrigued to at least check it out when it comes to, comes into trade. Three hard covers of this have actually already been published, but I was not going to not going to you know pay the exorbitant amount for the hard covers. Instead, I decided to wait and pay the exorbitant amount for the trade. <laughs> it, this is a solid read. Um, I get the sense of reading this that the good stuff is actually going to come later on in the series. Mark Wade's scripting is um, up to scratch. It's his, it's his usual um, excellent job. He's very good with character. Lionel Francis Yu does has that um, that early '90s uh, habit of doing really nice splash pages. But the storytelling is actually not up to scratch. He's always had that to his I'm not a fan of him. Not a not a bad artist, but not a not a, oh wow I must check this guy. The rest of this guy's work out. Uh, the big problem I think comes into you know having that initial setup, but then the rest of the story um, really focusing more on Shield throwing the Hulk at situations rather than um, dividing that between the Hulk and Banner's attempt to come up with plans and devices and technologies to help improve the planet. The solid issues of the second issue, where um, Banner and Stark team up to go deal with a problem in uh, the Himalayas, in which you're actually getting that sense of Banner actually being smarter than Tony Stark for the first time in anyone's career. That no one Banner has never actually been treated as be, as being superior to Tony Stark intellectually, hmm. and which is a, quite a nice issue. Um, but would have would have liked a little bit more in the subsequent three issues to actually take that idea a step further. Having said that, I am looking forward to um, volume, the trade version of Volume 2, where um, Walt Simonson does come on yeah. board, and Walt Simonson draws Thor. So, looking forward to reading that story. Awesome. Rating, I give this a solid effort, not brilliant, hoping for some good stuff later on, three looks. Alright, so that's, uh, thank you very much, Luke. Very mm-hmm. cool. Moving on to Crystal. Crystal's actually got a comic review uh, with Star Trek Archives, the best of 
Captain Cook. This is in David's nefarious ways. He bought me a comic, comic that he thought I would like. Okay, I came one day. I was like, oh, I love it, but you're Here's a comic. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, we're doing Waiting for Train. Oh, there's a coincidence. Funny that, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> um, this comic is written by the great Peter David. And I say great because I really enjoy his novels. I haven't read much of his comic work. So I'm, I'm not sure whether this is a, a good example or a bad example of his work. It's competently written, I would say, but and it's full of a lot of um, painted Peter David humour, which is, I quite enjoy, but the story itself is quite a... It's, it's not very original. It's, it's very typical sort of Star Trek fair. Nothing outstanding there. And the artwork is fairly standard. Um, although I have to point out, the artists cannot help themselves... They had to get Uhura into a bikini. <laughs> there was no reason for her to be in there. They could have had this scene in any other place. They could have had it on a ship. They could have had it they on could have been coffee somewhere. They could have been in a coffee shop. It didn't matter. No. They had to get her in a bikini. And not only did they get her in a bikini, they've got Captain Kirk's current love interest in a nice one-piece thong that only covers one breast. I know. Why is there a boob hanging out? Because she's a Kirk woman and she's making sure she's ready for when Kirk gets a bit excited. She's meant to be this strong willed female character, and then they've got it. You can't actually ever see any nippleage because it's artfully covered, I'm saying with air quotes. But it's not even pretty. It's quite muscular and ugly. It's strange, actually. It is strange, but also the way that the artist has posed... I'm looking at the top of that page there in which Uhura is sort of sun lounging and the other woman is... Yeah. Um, on all fours. On all fours. Look, I don't know if she's crawling because the previous page looks like she just come out of a lake. Her mouth is open. But... <laughs> anyway, move it on. Yeah. It's looking a bit... Um, don't yeah, I don't remember Star Trek being like that. And this is, and this is also... This is movie-era Uhura with, with grey hair. I mean, she's still very attractive. But why is she in a bikini? <laughs> None of the men ever get their clothes off. Well, uh, in the TV show, shirt, Kirk, it's actually yeah. all the time. He was the no, 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 Matthew McConaughey about, of uh, Star Trek I'm world. I'm talking about in this comic. Oh, right. No, even, even in this comic, Kirk's shirt's not even so much as ripped. <laughs> That's because they would have to draw um, William Shatner's physique at that time, and William Shatner's physique at that time was nothing like his physique so, at yes. Based on the story and, and you know the, the comic anecdote things, uh, the, the little Peter David bits of comedy I like that I quite like. I was going to give it a, a three and a half, um, but I'll bump it down to a two and a half for the, the horror bit. <laughs> Because it really annoyed for the, me. For the and gratuitous it, TNA. It just, it just didn't need to be in there. Really? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, so um, and on, in David's ongoing quest to get me into comics, fail. I didn't flip through it first. Maybe we've, got to, maybe, maybe we've got to move away from the Star Trek stuff and mm. maybe into... Um, Maybe, I don't know, like a Sandman type. Fables, Sandman, Fables. and Paradise Bone. Yeah, something, something a little bit a little bit different, you know, so... Well, having said that, oh, oh, that's the reason I kept reading. I mean, they got the characters done fairly well. It was... If it had been a better story, it would have been fine. Hmm. Cool, I'll say, uh, last but not least, is myself and uh, my long-awaited review of Spider-Man Rain. Spider-Man Rain was a Marvel Knights uh, release... 
in late 2006, and I think it crossed over into 2007, I'm not too sure, but it was December 2006. And Marvel Knights was their Marvel's sort of more adult-orientated type story, Elseworld-type thing, really, really good what it was. Um, it wasn't very good. The book itself deals with uh, a future version of Spider-Man in New York. He's now old and uh, has retired from being Spider-Man because uh, Mary Jane has died, and so earlier on, and so he's retired and he's now he's now become a florist. And New York's basically gone to crap in a very blatantly obvious post 9/11 sort of analogy. Uh, New York is now basically become a police state. And uh, they're about to implement a device called the web, uh, which will cover the sky, the, the sky as a collection of devices that connect up as, as like a neural net type thing. Over there. But is it like going to like monitor everybody? Yeah, it's going to monitor, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so yeah, so basically the city's gone to crap. Peter's old and uh, mentally unstable. Because he keeps seeing the ghost of Mary Jane and, and uh, life's terrible and everything's bad. Like I said, it's not, not only is it blatant, you know, post-9-11 type stuff, but it also is... A ridiculous ripoff of The Dark Knight Returns um, by Frank Miller. Um, not only is, does it take sort of like the scenario, but the art by, uh, I can't pronounce his first name, is it Kari? Kari? Andrews? Um, is a complete ripoff of uh, Dark Knight Returns. Um, and then strangely enough, uh, the actual sort of the tone of the book is actually more like The Dark Knight Strikes Again. So it's basically a combination of the two, but instead of uh, Batman, Superman, I wonder when you get Spidey. And even I mean, it even has it even has bits where it cuts off to a news two news anchors that have you know report on what's going on like every every issue. It's just ridiculous. I mean, somebody should have been sued. I mean, really, it's ridiculous. Because of that, I had a hard time t- taking Rain seriously. I mean, when I when I first read, it, I didn't read it when it first came out. I read it later on, um, and uh, within from the very first, I mean, the, the the first cover is actually quite quite interesting. I was like, oh wow, this is pretty cool. I'll give it a shot. Um, and it, you know, I was I was kind of in those sort of Marvel the End type stories at that point. I'm not, not too sure why I was going through a phase. Um, but it's, you know, within the first two pages, I was like, really? So before I before I get into into the bad and have my rant, I'll I'll, I'll start with the good. Let's get the good out of the way. Uh, the Hypno Hustler's in it, and he's hilarious. Awesome. It's always good to have the Hypno Hustler, and his appearance is actually is actually quite funny. Could, um, he could be possibly the worst villain ever created. <laughs> the Hypno Hustler, <laughs> Bug Man, Hypno Toad. No, I'm with you there, and Just, and Pace Pop Pete would be right up there as well. The interactions between Old Peter and Old Jameson um, are actually quite funny as well, and and quite well done, I think. As I mean, it all it all makes sense, even though really, how is Jameson still alive? Yeah, I was about to say, Jameson, Peter is quite old, and Jameson is older, but not that much older in this story. Whereas in no, current continuity, he's way older, so double the age. I don't know how Jameson's still alive. I don't know, but still. Future, future medicine has kept him alive. Yeah, maybe. His, his own pure rage has kept him going. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd be going with the rage. His yeah. rage has kept him going. You're totally right there. Obviously, I've missed something. Um, and the Sandman subplot, which I won't give away, is actually quite interesting as well. Um, so let's, let's, let's move on to the bad, um, and there's a lot of it. The art is incredibly inconsistent. Um, the story is actually quite boring. There's, there's really... There's nothing all that exciting that happens. Like I said, the Sandman subplot's pretty cool. And the end reveal of, of who the actual main villain is at the end is interesting. And they have 
some good dialogue. Uh, you know, I, won't, I don't want to give away the, the, the main villain, but um, they have some actually quite interesting dialogue. But unfortunately, the actual the, the actual fight itself is no, it can't actually match how good the dialogue is. So uh, the, the drama of the moment is not captured in the fight. And the story doesn't really accomplish anything. I mean, what, I, there's, there's no real clear, clear definition of what they're trying to say. Peter is not a very nice person. I mean, it's, it's basically, it's, yeah, he, as Spider-Man, he saves people and he's very heroic, and there's no denying that, that Spidey is a heroic figure. Uh, but where does that responsibility lie in his real life, in Peter's life? The main point of this, I suppose, is his relationship with Jameson. In the, the, uh, the Spider-Man stories, uh, Jameson doesn't know that Peter is, is Spidey, and Spidey uses that to his, uh, Jameson's hatred uh, to his advantage, to basically to sell pictures and, you know, so the paper will sell, that sort of stuff. Everybody, everybody knows how that works, that, that whole dynamic. But this story tries to point out that actually, that actually is that actually a good thing? I mean, it's it's, it's cool for us as, as fans to go, oh, yeah, you, see, you know, Peter's got one up on, on Jameson again, you know, that old JJJ. But hasn't he actually betrayed Jameson's trust? I mean, Jameson clearly likes Peter, and Peter is using that to break his trust in order to trick him. He's basically been tricking him all his life. Um, and... Even that is actually that's actually kind of interesting to me. That was actually one of my favourite parts about uh, Peter revealing his identity in Civil War is the reaction of everybody else around him. Jameson was actually really upset, and strangely enough, so was Doctor Octopus. Actually, one of my favourite issues is Doctor Octopus's reaction um, to Peter revealing himself. So it sort of ties into that. And other than that, sort of allude, so they allude to that fact. That I take it anywhere, and that really disappointed me. So one of the reasons why I don't like this comedy and I think it's rubbish is because. It's, that doesn't go anywhere. Like it points up, it, put, it, it brings up all these excellent points. Like the main, the main villain at the end, like I said, has it has actually some clear motivation for why he does what he does, and I actually agree with it. But it doesn't go anywhere. Peter, being a bit of a prick, really, never goes anywhere. And once again, he you know he becomes the hero that he becomes that he you know is, is meant to be portrayed as. It, it's kind of weird. As, so it's more of a it's more disappointment that this this doesn't actually go where it should have gone. But just to finish up, I'll just go with the main reason for why I think this book, this book is actually classed as rubbish for me instead of just a missed up a missed opportunity. Is like I said at the start, Mary Jane is dead, and that's you know that's not a good thing. But hey, you know that's what's bound to happen. But it, it's the way she dies. Now it's this is I'm going to call spoiler here because um, I need to in order to talk about it. Um, so spoiler here is. In an offhand comment, uh, Peter is basically uh, lamenting the fact that Mary Jane is dead and no longer with him, and reveals Mary Jane dies because Peter's sperm is radioactive. <laughs> Even though that actually kind of makes sense, I'll be honest with you, that actually kind of makes sense, because his blood would be radioactive as well, and it is a bodily, fu bodily fluid. This is not the sort of crap that I want to read in a Marvel comic. Right? This is the sort of stuff that I would read in a Mark Miller Nemesis and all that sort of rubbish that he produces. You know, this is the sort of stuff you'd hear in Kick-Ass, right? This is a Kick-Ass plotline that does not deserve its pl place in a Spider-Man Marvel comic. It's a disgrace, and it should have been cut. It's it, there's just no just not necessary. Just say Mary Jane's dead and just move on. Why? How she died is not important. It sounds like one of those things where uh, Andrews has gone. Oh, won't this be cool and edgy? And, yeah. Ooh, look at how mature I am. When in fact. It's actually kind of immature. It's completely immature, and it just—it's just, it's just not necessary. And it actually even ties in, sort of, the, trying to point out that Peter is actually kind of a prick because he kind of alludes to the fact that he knew. <laughs> so he said, so "When he's a smart guy, so he knew his blood was radioactive, so he would have known that." So, so you know, other things. It's just—it's really, really strange, and 
it offended it actually offended me as a Spider-Man fan but, and as also as a, as a Marvel comic reader it actually offended me and there's just there's just no place for it um, so yeah so for the for all of those reasons uh, I'm, I'm officially branding this comic as rubbish um, even for its good points the good points are nowhere near enough to good to to override its bad points and uh, I give this one look cool so that's waiting for trade moving on to let's finish up with coming soon Okay, coming soon in Australian cinemas, February 6th, we get uh, the remake of Robocop. Yeah, not sold on that one. Yeah, it does, it's once again, it's not necessary, but mm. I don't know, it looks okay. Maybe it'll do something different, and yeah. I'll be wrong, but... So yeah. Michael Keaton, that's the only reason to watch it. <laughs> uh, Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom. Really interested in that one. Yep. Uh, possible Academy winner. And yet we'll Idris that. has not been nominated. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, and Last Vegas, which is uh, it's basically a whole bunch of old actors doing one last hurrah. That looks like it could be mildly amusing. We, yeah. we seem to be getting a lot of these kind of films, though. Mm. It's like the baby boomers are getting older, and so mm-hmm. therefore suddenly we've got a lot of these, you know. Because it was the one with the motorcyclists. Yeah. Was it? That was Wild awful. Or whatever. Like it, just, <laughs> it just seems to be the, the thing it's now. It's quite old now. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a better calibre of actors in this one, though. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's quite more for a free one. And Kevin Klein. So, all medically good. <laughs> anyway, so that's uh, that's it for that's all that's coming out that week. Long-term listeners will know that at this point we actually normally uh, mention all the many varied ways that you can contact us. Um, from now on, actually, it was going to be a slight change. I'm actually going to uh, put that at the end of the episode after the credits. So, uh, it's available on the website as well, all the ways you can contact us. But also, if you, if you want to know what they are, they'll be at the end of the episode. So... So now we're just going to finish up. So uh, thank you very much for joining us for episode 77. It's been a lot of fun. That's it for me and the crew, Richo. Coming soon, Terrence Howard as Peter Parker's radioactive sperm. What? <laughs> and Luke. Coming soon, my, my life as a poor actor. The Terrence Howard story, <laughs> played by Don Cheadle. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Crystal. We're going to have a clam bit. <laughs> With radioactive sperm and Terrence Howard. <laughs> Played by Don Cheadle. <laughs> That's Starring awesome. Elvis Presley. And Don Cheadle. As Elvis Presley. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Okay, so the, uh, the many varied ways that you can contact us are our website. www.nerdculturepodcast.com Email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast Twitter. At nerdculturecast. Now you can also Skype us uh, on nerdculturepodcast and you can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And don't forget, we also have our Amazon affiliate widget on our website that uh, you can go, use to go through and purchase things through Amazon uh, with your own with your own account. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but we get a, a, a slice of the profits and um, a very small slice, but a slice nonetheless. It makes uh, us happy, and uh, which you know helps us uh, produce the show and uh, various other stuff. But also, it's just it's awesome. So if uh, if you could use that, that would be awesome. And thank you for listening.